Now we're going to be talking about from the Gospel of John and we've already had uh, chapter 2 read to us and uh, I had a similar problem that Pastor Darrell had in the sense of just trying to work out where to go with this and so there's no PowerPoint presentation, I've got my notes here so whether I stick to them or not you'll never know and uh, I'll just, you know, trusting that God's going to just bring to you a message as I as I've looked at the different sections of this chapter and as I've spent time reading and praying and going over it and just asking the Lord just what does he to say, I've finally come up with some notes and I'm going to pray right now and then I'm going to go through and just uh, talk about this passage to you. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you that you're a great God. And we thank you for the way that Gary and Ruth have shared tonight, the little Gary shared on Gary and Ruth's behalf about what you've been doing in Japan and the miracles that you've been at work performing there and the way that you are building your church there. Thank you, Lord, that you're building your church here at Sunnybank, and we thank you for the way that you're at work in our midst and in our lives. We want to thank you that you're a God who is always there, a God who is, never leaves us, never forsakes us, a God who is there in every circumstance of our life if we've committed our life to you. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight we might hear from you, that you might just speak to our hearts and we might hear the message that you've got for us, that we might go from here knowing that you've met with us and that we've met with you thank you for the the songs that have already drawn us in worship to you thank you for the way we've been able to sing to your praise and your glory already and so we just thank you for this night in Jesus name amen if you've got your bibles there that's uh, you can follow through or if you it'll, the, the, some of the verses will come up on the screen from time to time but just trying to think in terms of this passage, it goes into three different sections. We've got the, the wedding, we've got Jesus clearing out the temple, and then we've got a little summary at the end. So I'm going to be talking about it from those three different uh, uh, parts of the, of, the cha- of the chapter. But in thinking about this, uh, you know, many of us have been to weddings, and, and uh, if you're back in the Jewish times, the, wedding re- you know, the, the, the bride and groom didn't go away on a honeymoon. They had the wedding and then they stayed there in the village and they had a big celebration that went probably for about a week and they had a whole lot of uh, structure to them. I'm going to go through and tell you all that happened at a Jewish wedding but, uh, and go through all the different elements. I have read about them but I've forgotten some of them by now. But uh, they had this great time of celebration but they were facing a, an embarrassing situation. And I wonder how many of you faced an embarrassing situation. I can remember this uh, having these group of people come to our house and they were having we were going to have a bible study and uh, there's a group of ladies and they came and they were in our lounge and suddenly somebody said what's that smell and suddenly they looked over and there was these footprints from the front door right across the carpet right to where this one lady was sitting and uh, she, the, it must have been a, a large dog that's, that had been uh, on the footpath or somewhere. And she just, you know, and she was, you know, she felt like she was so embarrassed. And, she was, and, uh, and, uh, and it was one of those things that was talked about for a, a while after that. That was her embarrassing situation. Now, I don't, I'm not telling you about my embarrassing situations. I'm sure you can think of some. But we're places where... And some of us, uh, as kids, our parents have, we've been embarrassed by our parents and some of the things they've done. And, and some of us, as parents, have been embarrassed by our kids. I can remember taking my son, when he was about nine years of age, to the shops. 
and he asked for a milkshake or something, a flavoured milk or something like that. And he was drinking, he just finished drinking that. And then we went to the next shop and the milk was suddenly on the floor. He threw up everything, everywhere, all over the floor. And, and I was uh, a bit embarrassed by that and had to do, deal with that, that situation. But for these people, they had a wedding and Mary was there. She was the, the, the main sort of almost like the master of ceremonies, the lady behind the scenes organising things. And uh, it was a, a very small community and everybody would have been there and, and the Jesus and his disciples. But by now, Jesus didn't have his whole 12 yet. They only had about five or six of them there that, had been, that were following him. They appointed the 12 a little later on. It was his, this is very early in his ministry and they're at this village very close to where Jesus grew up. They're probably about 10 or 12 kilometres from where he grew up at Nazareth. And it seemed like Mary had this prominent role in the, in the wedding. And it seems that possibly they, that one of the traditions is that it was probably Nathaniel's family that were involved in the wedding. That's what some people have speculated about. But then the, the bridegroom and their family faced a possible shame and disgrace. Only the thing is, I don't think the bridegroom knew nothing, anything about it. But Mary was aware of what was going on. And so she goes and she speaks to the Lord about it. And in chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, that's Jesus, they have no more wine. Now, you think, oh, well, so what? But if you'd lived in those days, it was a serious thing and the, the, the bridegroom's response, family was responsible for supplying the drink and uh, they, used, they had wine at the wedding and it was, you know, it was going on for days. They had the celebration going for several days, for about a week. And if you ran out of wine, it was you know, a really serious thing. In fact, there could be even, you could even be taken to court for about it and that was the, how serious it was. And so Mary was concerned about this particular problem. She was concerned that the wine was gone. And so she goes and she speaks to the Lord Jesus about it. And he, you know, you know, and he replies to her, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now it sounds like a, a pretty strange way of, of talking, but it seems as though he, he's really talking to her in a very affectionate way. He's using the same words that he used when he spoke about, uh, about Mary when he was on the cross. He, and the way he, dear woman, he's speaking to her very politely, very uh, nicely. And he's saying, my time has not yet come. And I was just trying to, you know, sort of reading a little bit about what does he really mean by this. One person paraphrased these verses, leave it with me, I'll come up with something. But it's a bit awkward right now for me. That's the sort of thing he was saying. And so Mary wasn't put right off. Now that's maybe probably maybe quite a little bit strong in the way he, that paraphrase says it, but it's somewhere but sort of along those lines. He's saying, leave it with me. He wasn't really comfortable, he didn't really want to do something, anything about it, but he, he knew that this was his mother. And it seems that by now, Joseph was off the scene, whether he was, had passed away or he wasn't there for some reason, we don't know. But it, it seems as though Mary looked to the Lord Jesus as the eldest son in the family to help her with when, when she faced crises. And so she 
speaks to him and she asks him about it and she's leaving she's raising this issue raising this issue of embarrassment and disgrace and and they this family would have been would be a talk about the village for, for for years the family that ran out of wine at the wedding and so she Mary's concerned about it she may have even been related to the, the family we're not sure and so she's left this situation with the Lord and the Lord then as she's leaving she says to the servants do whatever he tells you that's what the instructions were she tells the servants do whatever he tells you they're good words aren't they does the Lord tell people to do things today have you had the Lord ever speak to you and guide you about certain things in your life and you feel and and you you and it, in all sorts of different ways now it may not be an audible voice that you've heard the Lord speak to you maybe it's through some passage of the word of God maybe it's through another Christian maybe it's through some circumstances maybe it's just a sense that in your own self that you feel this is the right thing for you to do maybe you feel like you should go and speak to somebody or whether you should ring up somebody or whether you should do something or maybe it's in a situation where you've got to make a decision a split decision about something where you know shall I do this or shall I do that and you are you pray and you ask the Lord and you trust the Lord to guide you or direct you when you come to a situation so the Lord does speak today we don't have him physically here with us we don't have a we can't actually go and, and, and hear his actual physical voice but that's what these people did they were there at this wedding and, and his for you know a small number of his disciples were there and so there the, Jesus comes up with some instructions in, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. They used this water for washing their hands. And uh, remember this, later on in the, in the Bible where when, when the, the disciples were gathered in the upper room and they got some water and, they put it, and he put it in a basin and he washed their feet? Well, they used, you know, that's the normal thing when you came into a place you dusty old feet and you got them washed and so on that, that's what the, the, these, 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 these stone jars were used for great big things and so he you know Jesus tells these people these, these servants to fill the jars of water and they filled them and they were, filled, they were told to fill them to the brim right to the very top couldn't put any more water now the servants might have even just looked at them and looked at one another and fill them to the brim yes that's what he said but we don't normally fill them that much these are great big things and and if we've got to move one of those things so full of water they're you know they're pretty heavy things you know a gallon you know it's about five kilos we'll just fit under five kilos you know that's what they, they're using the measurement here of gallons or or liters about four liters that's about that's about five kilos and you work it out and then there's the jars themselves that are pretty heavy stone solid stone things the normal thing was that you'd only fill them up probably about two-thirds so you could move them around and Jesus said fill them to the brim in other words go and th the instruction was beyond what they would normally be asked to do was above and beyond the normal things they they were exceeding their normal workload they didn't you know they if you today if you were in a workplace 
and the workplace health and safety had would have certain rules about things of what you can and can't do and some of you know a little bit about that and you end the rules and regulations that you've got to work to and so on and if you don't stick to them you can be in big trouble but they fortunately they didn't have that sort of thing in those days and so the servants the servants that were there in in the in the wedding in the, helping mary in the and so on in the wedding the servants who were there involved in this in this at this time were given this job of filling up these jars they weren't the you know the important people they were down they were down on the lower level fill the jars with water and then they as they scooped into the water and as they took them out and they were told they had to go and take some of the water to the master of the banquet and as they went, put their, their scoop in and they took out some and whatever container they put it in and as they carried it across, and I don't know whether it was when they scooped it out or whether they were walking across with it, but suddenly it wasn't water. Suddenly they had wine to, and they took it to the, the, the person in charge. And here they, they see this water had been changed from water to wine. A miracle had been performed. They had followed the instructions of the Lord Jesus. And that's one of the things as Christians, it tells us over in 1 John, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And he says, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walks. And it goes on and talks in terms of how that these Christians were expected to be loving one another. So as Christians, we're expected to obey the commands of the Lord. And these people followed the commands. These servants followed the commands of the Lord. They did what he told them and God blessed them. And God and, and the Lord turned this, this water into wine and this place that was... A time where they, they were a time when they could have seen great uh, embarrassment and great shame to a family. The whole thing was changed and turned around. The result was that the, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise that it had come through the servants who had drawn the water, knew, the servants of the, who drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he didn't bridegroom did nothing about it. So how come you're, you're serving the best at the end? People already, if they've been here for a while, they'll, they've been drinking for a while, and then after a while, if they usually, people usually bring out the, 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 the sort of less quality wine, and people don't know any difference because they've already been drinking for a while, drinking wine for a while. But you've, take, you've brought the best out at last. And so here, one of the things, the result was... It says in verse 11, this the first of his miracle signs, miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana and Galilee. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Can you think of similar, any similar situations that you've faced yourself? Similar to this story where here the servants, these are the, the, the people, the lowest level in, of people are in, the, in, the, in this situation. They were the ones that God used, the very ordinary people. I know I've told this story a number of years ago here, but I can remember when I was working at a camp. 
a youth camp and it was a bit like the weather was a bit like what we've had this week went down to the we're down at the camp at the Gold Coast with about a hundred teenagers and I was the one of the leaders in the camp and the, and uh, had some responsibilities in taking the, the Bible studies at that particular camp and there are other people leaders and of course in the each of the cabins they had cabin leaders and and some of the kids had come and they were really really disappointed because day after day it rained and then it rained and it, it just kept raining all week and we were we came down on a Saturday and we we're going home on a Saturday and so this was and it was Thursday night some of the leaders came and spoke to me it was about midnight and they said look We've been talking to some of the kids in the cab, guys in the cabin, and they they said, "Look, we came down here for a week of surfing, and uh, they were very they were sort of saying we don't believe in this God stuff and this Christianity. We don't don't want anything to do with that at all ourselves. We came down here for surfing, and we haven't been able to do any surfing all week." And they and these non-Christian kids said, "We'll put a challenge to you. You believe God answers prayer." You pray to your God and pray that he will change the weather pattern and tomorrow we'll have the best surf ever. He looked outside and these young, kids, young leaders said, yes, we'll do it. Then they came up and told the, myself and the other camp leaders about it and we thought, yes, that's the, they're the lead. They, they took on the challenge. So we got down and we prayed. It was the ordinary cabin leaders who'd come and many of them were just a few years older than the kids in the camp. Some of them were only, you know, were still in high school themselves. And they prayed that God would change the weather. And so we, we said, yes, we'll take it on. And they were the ones who led the way. They prayed. We prayed. Got up the next morning, looked outside and the rain was just pouring down. It was bucketing down. This is about six o'clock in the morning. So we had breakfast. I think we had our studies about 8.30 to 9.30. By 10 o'clock, when we were walking down the beach, it was brilliant blue, sun, you know, blue skies. And the sun was shining. And the, and the, and the, kid, the, the leader of the group of you know, cabin leaders were absolutely thrilled. They were oh look hasn't great God has answered prayer and on the way down to the from from where we were at the campsite down to the Burley Heads beach several of those non-Christian kids committed their life to the Lord and it was that the whole weather pattern had been changed and God had answered it and these got some of the guys the guys who were surfers said this is the best surf we've ever had but it wasn't the leaders the senior leaders it was the junior leaders it was the ordinary workers in the same way in this story it was the ordinary people that God used it was the ordinary people through whom God was at work and so for you this evening it's not the pastors it's not the elders it's not the leaders it's God wants to work through you God wants to use you for his glory and the same way he used these servants for his glory. And it says here, you know, this was the first of the, his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana and Galilee. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their trust and they put their faith in him. 
be encouraged. God wants to use you. The first thing you've got to do is start just listening to his voice and obeying him and doing what he tells you to do. And sometimes it's hard to hear what God, and sometimes it's hard to, to listen, and sometimes it's hard to work out what is God saying. But here God was at work in this situation. So be encouraged. And so that was the first part of the chapter. And so you go on to verse 12 and there's a bit of a change of location, a bit of a gap in time. After this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And then it was almost time for the Jewish Passover and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he goes right from the northern part of the country down to the southern part of the country to where Jerusalem is, where all the religious leaders are. They go down there to celebrate the Passover. This was the end in the, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus. There are several Passovers mentioned. This is the first one of them. And so it's right at the very beginning of his ministry. And so he goes and he goes to the temple, the place where they're going to worship and where they're going to celebrate the, the Passover. And, uh, and there he gets to the temple. He comes to the outside part of the temple where the, the, you know, they had different sort of sections where you could come to where and as you went, up, went in from everyone, from any, no matter what country you came from, you could go to this outer part. And at this time of the year, at the, about the Passover, there'd be over two million people probably in Jerusalem, all jammed in there from all different parts of the world. The Jews had to travel from all sorts of uh, parts of the world, that part of the world, then known world, and they came to Jerusalem there to, to worship and to celebrate the Passover. But also there was provision for the, in the outright, in the very outer court where the, the Gentiles could come, the non-Jewish people. And then it went in, and then, it was, then it went in where, slowly it went into from where, where men and women could be, women could actually go in and then it went court of the men and then it got in right to the very centre of, of the temple in the holiest of holies, is only where the high priest could go once a year. So they had these various levels of, you know, stages where you could go in to the temple itself, into the sanctuary, the place where they met with God. And so right on the very outer part. Because people came from all over different parts of the world, they had a way of making sure that people could buy animals for sacrifice and they could change their, their currency from wherever they came from into the, the Jewish currency. Of course, they had an exchange rate for their currency. But probably, uh, you know, if it happened today, the banks would be, you know, we talk about the banks ripping us off today. Well, the Back in those days, they well and truly ripped people off and they charged excessive amounts and, and exchange rates that be, you, know, you couldn't believe. They used this opportunity to make lots of money. And of course, they sold the animals for all sorts of outrageous prices. And so here, <coughs> right at this time, Jesus comes in and he made a whip out of cords and he drove all the... All of those from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins for the money changers and overturned the tables and those who sold the doves. And he said, Get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And so, this is right at the very beginning of the time when he was going around preaching. It's interesting also, the very last time he went up to Jerusalem, he did something similar. You read about that in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke chapter 19. Did a similar thing. He cleared out, did a similar clean out right at the very end of his ministry. Say, so what's all this all about? Why is he doing all this sort of thing? What's, 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 he, 
What's he, what's he trying to do? Because if you look at the very, the very first thing, is that in the first miracle we see the power of God released, don't we? We see how he worked, he, cha- he, worked over, he had showed that he was Lord over, over nature and how he was able to turn water, to, you know, water into wine. What's he doing? What, what's this passage about? What sort of authority is he claiming? He chased them out and he called it my father's house. They got the message that he was telling them that he wasn't just an ordinary person. He was telling them that he was God. And so they weren't very happy about him doing this. And the religious leaders, the Jews, the, the word Jews, when you read John's gospel, it really means those, Jew, those antagonistic people, those who were against Jesus, those you know, Pharisees and Sadducees, those religious leaders that were against Jesus, that were you know, up, you know, sort of opposing everything that he did. And so you find that term used. They demanded of him in verse 18, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove that your authority to do all of this? And Jesus looked around at their temple. Now they'd been building it for 46 years and they were going to keep building it for quite a while yet because they'd only just finished building it and it got destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And they were putting, they were beautifying it, and they were spending. You know, Herod was the was the king who was involved in spending. In day, these days, we'd say billions of dollars on it. And he was trying to beautify and make it a monument to himself, the outside part of the temple. And so the Lord refers, Lord Jesus referred to this as my father's house. And he claimed the authority that he was God. And they asking him, you know for a miraculous sign and he said the only miraculous sign I'm going to give you is destroy this temple and I'll build it up in three days and they're looking you know come on you know you're a bit mad I build rebuild a temple in, in three days and they'd be we'd been building it for 46 years up to now and it's and of course the building work was going to continue on past that time but he was talking about the fact that if he was going to be cru- to die that he'd be raised back to life in three days. It's interesting that these words are, are remembered when the chief priests of the, the whole hand Sanhedrin in, in, in Matthew chapter 26 and, and also in Mark chapter four, 14, you know, when he was on his, at his trial, they said, this fellow said, I will, I'm able to destroy the, I'm able to destroy the temple and, and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you going to answer? And he didn't even answer at all. That's in Matthew chapter 26. And it's repeated again. And when he's hanging on the cross, people pass by shaking their heads in Matthew chapter 27. You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. They were throwing, they were, they were remembered these words. Because it made some sort of impression to them and it was used. You know, as, you know they accused you know, they used it just to accuse him and to criticise him. So the Lord had cleared this temple precincts and, and, and all the money changes and, and thrown them out of it and caught in his house of prayer, his father's house. He'd spoken about it as his body. Because there's another part of scripture that says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. And it goes to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
For I received what I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. The fact this statement he made about destroying this temple and rebuilding in three days was something that was, if you go back in the Old Testament, the fact that he's coming, the fact that he's dying, the fact that he's being buried, the fact that he rose back to life, being raised back to life again, was predicted in the Old Testament. And so he's saying, I am God. And they, they were enraged by the fact that he claimed the authority of being God. And so that's the second section we've been talking about. The first section, turning water into wine, demonstrating the power of God. Second section, claiming that he is God. And then the third little section. And he says, while he was at the Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need any man's testimony about him, for he knew what was in a man. In other words, he's saying, hey, you need to be really committed to me. And so in, just, in coming to the end of my time, what I'm going to say tonight is I've got a summary here that was written by a, a guy called Fritz Riddauer in a little, little book on John's Gospel. He said, this chapter falls nicely into three parts. John chapter 2 verses 1 and 11 is the story of making wine at Cana. Here was Christ's first public miracle and is a clear-cut example of his divine power. In John chapter 2 verses 12 to 22 describes the raid on the temple racketeers, a clear-cut example of Christ's authority to speak and to act as if he were God himself because he is God himself. And the last section in 23 to 25 is Christ's refusal to commit himself to those his interest was, interest was superficial. So tonight, in we look at this passage, we need to be working with God and allowing God to be at work in our lives. But the challenge is, are we fully committed to him? Or are we like these people at the end that we just superficial? They knew about it. They were sort of around Jesus. They saw the miracles he performed, but they weren't prepared to fully commit their life to him. And so the question I ask you this, this evening, are you prepared to make yourself available so the power of God can work through you? Do you recognise Jesus as God in the flesh? And are you fair dinkum about your Christian faith and your Christian walk with him? Are you fully committed to him? Am I fully committed to him? Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this opportunity to be together tonight. I want to thank you that you're a God who knows everything that's going on in our lives. You know everything about all the situations that we face and the challenges we have. And we thank you that you're a God who's interested in every part of our life. Help us, Lord, to rely on you, to obey you and to trust you, to allow your power to work through us. Help us to acknowledge you as the sovereign Lord, as the, the God of, and the Son of God, the one who's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And help us, Lord, not to be superficial and just put on a big act, but really to be fair dinkum about living for you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.